Last Sunday, we finished uh, our series in the book of Galatians. And next Sunday, we're going to start a series looking at the last words of Jesus when He hung on the cross to kind of move us toward Easter. But we're today kind of in between those two, and so today, what I want us to do, I want to ask you if you would join me on sort of what I would call a trip back to the future. Now, some of you are old enough to know that expression, back to the future, so I just want to emphasize I am not this morning going to talk about flux capacitors. I am not going to talk about DeLoreans. I am not going to um, talk about Marty McFly, although I did think this morning I should wear a vest so I'd kind of look like him. You know, I have one of those down vests. I could have looked like him, but I'm not going to do that. What I want you to do is I want you to go back with me for a few moments back in time 10 years. So to do that, I want you to think for a second what, you, what your life was like 10 years ago, and also, if you can do this sort of simultaneously, what you hope your life will look like in 10 years. Now, the reason I picked 10 years is because 10 years ago today, Carrie and I walked into this building for the very first time. And then a month later, uh, I stood on this platform and preached for the first time here. So given that, what I'd really like to do, sort of this back to the future thing, is I want to ask you if you have a Bible to turn in it or turn it on to Matthew chapter 22. We're going to look at the passage that we looked at that time, the very first time I ever spoke here. But I do want to underline, if you're using the Pew Bible, by the way, you can find it on page 828. But I do want to emphasize the reason for looking back isn't really so much to look back, is this really is about back to the future. We need to go forward. We need to think about what does the future look like and how do we go into the future. Now, I do want a personal aside just for a moment. Okay, my life and the life of our family is noticeably different, considerably changed over the last 10 years. Perhaps you could say the exact same thing. Maybe your life has changed a lot in the last 10 years. For me personally, the the changes that have taken place in our family and and sort of in my my life in particular have caused me over the last, probably last number of months and certainly in the last month or so in in a heightened way, two questions have kind of come up in a very pronounced way, sort of two things that I think are impacting me. One question really flows out of what I would call sort of life stewardship. In essence, what am I doing with what I have been given? You know, what is it that I've been doing with all the things that I've been given? What am I doing with those things? The second question kind of connected to it is also raised in my life is making me ask the question sort of related to legacy. What legacy am I leaving? What is the legacy of my life? What is, what's coming behind me? What is it I'm pointing people to? What's going to be my life? Now, I don't think those things are just true about me to kind of stop the aside. I I think those questions really uh, apply to all of us. I mean, I think you could ask the question in your life, what is it that you're doing with what you've been given? I I learned just before the service that Jeff Cypersma, who's the chairman of our elders, that 42 years ago today is the day that Jeff trusted Jesus Christ. So, Jeff, what are you doing with that? 
Or, Jeff, what legacy, in essence, are you leaving from that? That applies to all of us. What is the stewardship of your life? What is the legacy of your life? But it's not just to us as individuals. I think the same thing can be said for us as a church. What is Central doing with what Central's been given? Okay, today marks Sunday number 52 in our recovered, renovated worship center. This is the 52nd time. So we've completed a whole year back in this room. What are we doing with what we've been given? Or as a church, we're 144 years old. What is the legacy Central's leaving in this community? What is it? I think those are significant questions. Now to me, asking those kinds of questions, what's kind of percolated and bubbled up in my own life is sort of the reality of I do need to look back a little bit to answer those questions, but way more importantly, what I need to do, what I think we need to do, is they challenge me to look to the future. They challenge me to to go forward, which maybe means another question for me needs to be answered, and that is, how do I go forward? Maybe you need to ask the question, how do you go forward? Simultaneously, at the same time, we maybe need to ask the question as a, as a church, how do we as a church go forward? I've been accused many times of being someone who makes things really complicated. And I don't want to do that this morning, but I don't also want to make this sound so simplistic. But I'm not trying to be simplistic, but if you want a quick answer to the question, how do you go forward to the future? I think the answer to that question can actually be found in a statement that is attributed in our generation or in the last number of years to an author by the name of Stephen Covey, but when I was first introduced to it, I was told it was a Chinese proverb. I have no idea if it really is a Chinese proverb, but the statement is really, really simple. The main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. So if you and I want to go into the future, we've got to keep the main thing the main thing, which probably raises first right away a very simple question. What's the main thing? I mean, if we're supposed to keep the main thing the main thing, if that's the main thing of life, what is it? That's why I ask you to turn to Matthew chapter 22, because I want to ask and walk through verses 34 to 40 this morning to figure out kind of what is this main thing? Now, to jump into the middle of a text like that, I do want to kind of set it in context very quickly. So, Matthew chapter 22 takes place in what we would call the Holy Week, sort of the week between Palm Sunday and the triumphal entry and Jesus being crucified on Good Friday and rising again on Easter Sunday. It's in that week. And in that week, in the midst of all the other things that were going on, there was a bit of a competition of sorts taking place between at least a couple of different groups of religious leaders, Jewish religious leaders, who were trying to figure out a way to trounce Jesus. They wanted to take Jesus down, and they were trying to figure out how to do it. What we know from the end of Matthew 21 is that at least some of the religious leaders wanted Jesus to be arrested. In fact, we're pretty confident they all wanted Jesus arrested. They were trying to figure out how to do that. We know from Matthew chapter 22, verse 15, that some of the leaders figured a good way to get Jesus into trouble, how they could trounce him and arrest him, was if they could get him to twist his words somehow. If they could create a scenario that would get him to stick his foot in his mouth, they'd have him. 
So that was kind of the context. That's the context of where this story starts. They're out to get Jesus. They're trying to bring him down. So verse 34 of Matthew 22 says this, But when the Pharisees heard he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. Now real quickly, to make sure we understand the players in the story, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, maybe we could say the Patriots and the Eagles if that will help you pay attention this morning. Okay? So who are the Sadducees? Well, to be honest, we don't know a lot about them historically, but what we think, and think is the key word, we don't definitively know this, but what we think they were was basically wealthy or powerful men who kind of approached life from a very secular or pragmatic standpoint. That was kind of their mindset. They were very, in that sense, if we would use the word secular, that was kind of how they looked at it. So as they looked at religious life, they were considered part of the religious leadership, but as they looked at religious life, really what they were concerned about is they thought the temple was really important. But anything else that was kind of spiritual or maybe would put demands on them of things they'd have to do that would cramp their style... They didn't really like. Now, on the other hand, the Pharisees, basically what the Pharisees were, were they were men, again, who were very concerned about the Bible of the day, about the Old Testament. They were very concerned about all the details. Now, you can imagine, they didn't always get along with each other, but they did have a common enemy, Jesus, and they wanted to bring Him down. Now, in the previous section, the previous verses that had just happened, the Sadducees had tried to take on Jesus, and it hadn't gone very well. Okay, verse 34 says they were silenced. You can translate the word silence with the word muzzled. Jesus had so effectively shut them down, they didn't know what to say. They couldn't speak. They were speechless, you could say. That got the Pharisees together to say, hang on a second, we've got to come up with a game plan. Now, the Pharisees already had tried once in Matthew 22, and it hadn't gone well. But you've got to give these guys credit. They are persistent, so they're going to try again. So verses 35 and 36. And one of them, a lawyer, asked a question to test him. Teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? Now, really quickly, when it says lawyer there, you shouldn't necessarily think of just an attorney. He probably was an attorney. He probably was a legal expert, but he was also a learned theologian, okay? They understood, their understanding of the Old Testament was it applied to everything in life. So he came to ask the question. Now, the question he's asking really was because, you say, why did they ask that question? Well, they asked that question because in the background of life in Jerusalem and in, in Israel at that point was a great debate among the rabbis. The rabbis were trying to make sense of the Old Testament law. Now, when we talk about the Old Testament law, there were 613 commands in the Old Testament. More than 300 of those commands are what you would call a prohibition, things you weren't to do, kind of like, you know, do not murder. Okay, that's a prohibition. It's a negative command, so they, there's a whole lot of those. And then there's 285 commands that are things you are to do, sort of do these things. So the rabbis were looking at it going, well, we understand there's a whole lot of them. We see some are, we're not to do, some we are to do, but we're trying to process this. We, we want to make sense of them in some way. And so the rabbis had this debate going on about how do you classify these laws, how do you make sense of them? Well, what they did is they said, hey, some of the laws obviously are a big deal. Some are really big laws. And so they began to say, hey, these must be the weighty laws. In our terminology, you might say these are the felonies. These are the really bad things. 
Well, if some things are a really big deal, then there's probably some that are less of a deal, that aren't that significant, so they'd call them light. We might say they're misdemeanors. You know, they're not good. You might get a slap on the wrist, but it's not that big of a deal. Now, to you and I, classifying the laws into groups may not seem like that big of a deal, but in the background was a sense that they quite literally were trying to develop their own code of morality. Instead of God having decreed this is a sin, they were like, well, that's a big sin. Okay, we're with you there, God, but that one, that's not that much of a deal. They were kind of trying to shape life the way they wanted it to. They wanted to separate themselves from God and what God said. So from their vantage point, this set Jesus up big time. Because there was all these debates on what's weighty, what's light, and Jesus is going to wade in and somebody's going to be against him and that's going to work out for our favor. Most of the time when the religious leaders would ask Jesus a question, Jesus would respond indirectly or he'd respond to them with a question. But in this scenario, he's very direct, very straightforward. Verses 37 to 39, Jesus says these words. And he said to him, so Jesus said to the lawyer, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, from Jesus' clear answer, what's the main thing? The main thing, very simply, folks, is love God, love people. Okay, love God, love people. Now, I want to make sure... We understand all what that means or some of what that means, so we just want to unpack these verses really quick, okay? So verse 37, kind of zoom your attention on verse 36. In verse 30, or verse 37, excuse me, verse 37, Jesus is quoting from the second verse of a passage from Deuteronomy chapter 6 known as the Shema. Shema, the reason they call it the Shema is the first word of Deuteronomy chapter 6, 4 is here. In Hebrew, it would be Shema. So that's why they call it that. Okay, if you were a pious Jew, you would say the Shema twice a day, every day of your life. Now the point of the verse that Jesus quoted, the second verse, is really simple. You are to love God with your whole life. You are to commit your whole life to God. Well, why would you do that? Well, the first verse of the Shema tells us about who Jesus is. And the whole context of Deuteronomy, the entire book of Deuteronomy, the first three chapters of the book of Deuteronomy are basically a walk through history. So in essence, the command to love God falls in the context of because of who God is and because of what God has done, the response of your life to Him should be you follow Him with your whole life. He is the thing you love above everything else. That's that context. Now, The second commandment in verse 39, just to zoom in on that, this idea of love people, Jesus there is quoting from Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 18. Okay, and it's fairly straightforward. You are to love your neighbor. By love, Jesus is saying what you should look to is when you think about another person, you should think about what is their highest good, what would be in their best interest, and you are devoted, you're committed to trying to help them get there, not expecting anything in return, okay? You're not saying, hey, I'll scratch your back if you'll scratch my back. No, you simply love them because that's what's best for them. You're trying to move in that direction. In essence, because you love God, because God loved you, 
and you've realized that, you're going to see people the way God does, and you want what's best for them, just like God wants best for you. Now, in the context of, hey, there's tension and all of that, we need to understand, be really, really hard for someone to push back on Jesus about loving, people, about loving God. That would be really tricky to push back on. But this idea of loving people, there was a lot of tension. Okay, think about the story, the, the story of the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10. And what set up that story was the fact that people wanted to kind of massage the definition of neighbor. Like, I want my neighbor to be people that I like and like me and are nice to me and never do anything bad to me. Well, just to make sure we understand who Jesus means by neighbor, I want you to think about two things really quickly. One is in the book of Leviticus, in Leviticus 19, that's where the context comes from. That's where the the quote comes from. In that chapter and in the progression of that chapter, it will tie loving your neighbor to loving someone who is a sojourner, someone who is a foreigner, someone who is an alien, meaning someone who's not like me, someone who's not from where I'm from, but God inspired Moses to put in there, hey, you know who your neighbor is? That foreigner, that alien, that sojourner. And we know from Luke chapter 10, the way Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan, that your neighbor is your enemy. Your neighbor is that person that you cross paths with every day or any Now, to be honest, in the context Jesus said that, that was going to ruffle some feathers. And the truth is, it might ruffle some feathers for you and me. But here's the implication. Here's the challenge. What did Jesus live out? Jesus lived out loving Jewish people, Samaritan people, loving people that weren't like Him at all. And what is he calling you and me to do? The exact same thing. What is the main thing? What is the thing we are to keep focused on? Loving God, loving people. Now, I really do want to get to some future stuff, but very quickly, I just want to ask the question, why are those the main thing? Why is it that loving God and loving people are the main thing? Why is that what we need to kind of, the main thing is keep the main thing, the main thing. Why do we keep that the main thing? Look with me at verse 40 to finish sort of this section of the story. On these two commands, Jesus said, demand the law and the prophets. In those words, I think Jesus is telling us that the flow of the entirety of Scripture Okay, they only had the Old Testament at that point, but the entire Bible they had, what they had, the flow of all of it flows out of loving God and loving people. To, to say it another way, to truly be human. One of the commentators I looked at said, to truly be human, to, to be true to who we were created to be, how we were created. We need to love God and love people. Say, why? Why is that so essential to who we are? Really quickly, I want to walk through Genesis 1, Genesis 2, Genesis 3, okay? Genesis 1, verse 26, 27, and 28 tell us that you and I were created in the image of God. What does that mean? In part, what that means is we were created for a relationship with God. 
We were created to be with Him. We were created to love God. Essential to who we were created to be is loving God. You flip over in your Bible to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2 verse 18 says, It's not good for the man to be alone. Okay, now we know in the story of Adam and Eve, that's kind of how it got started, that God was going to create Eve. But here's an implication out of that statement. We weren't created, it's not good for man to be alone. Not only were we created to have a relationship with God, we were created to have a relationship with people. All of a sudden, essential to who we are as people, if we're really going to be who God created us to be, we need to relate to God, we need to relate to people. In essence, it means we need to love God and we need to love people. To use a phrase that gets thrown around a lot, if we're going to be our best self or we're going to be our true self, that's what the Bible says involves. Loving God, loving people. Sorry, I didn't mean to pick on you guys, but I started at that slide. So you're Genesis 3. What happens in Genesis 3? We find out that we're not our true best selves. We are distorted. We chose to sin. We chose to walk away from God, and we're distorted. We are so far from being our true and best self. And the truth is the only way we can be our true and best selves is through God intervening into our lives. I want you to think about this for a second. The book of Deuteronomy and the book of Leviticus were first given to the people who were part of the Exodus. The people that found themselves in bondage and the only reason they got out of bondage is because God stepped in and redeemed them. He rescued them. In essence, the command to love God and love people is in response to God's goodness to them. We're not the people of the Exodus, but we are people who live in the shadow of the cross. We are people for whom Jesus died on the cross. People that are so far from what we should be, but He died to reconcile us to God and to begin a movement in our life so we'd become the people we're supposed to be, so we could be our true selves. How would you respond to God's goodness to you? Jesus, I think, is telling us, love God and love people. That's why they're the main thing. For you and I to be who we were intended to be, we've got to do that. Then the question is, okay, if that's why they're the main thing and they are the main thing, how do we do this? How do we do this? Folks, I don't want to go back 10 years. I want us to go forward. But I have this week taken the time to ponder the last 10 years. And one of my deep concerns as I look back over 10 years of messages that I've shared here at Central is that it is really easy to share information. But that is not the point of today. And clearly that is not the point of any Sunday. My prayer for today and for however many more Sundays I have to share at Central, is that the messages that are shared will lead people to trust Jesus as their Savior. That they will stir followers of Christ to become more like Christ. That they will spur followers of Christ to get engaged in the mission of the Lord Jesus. That we are doing the things He's calling us to do. 
See, it is not enough for us to know the main thing. It doesn't really do us in one sense any good to know what the main thing is unless we do the main thing, unless we keep it the main thing. So to finish up what I want to do to kind of wrap up today is to really say here are four habits, here are four things I think we need to do over the next 10 years. This is how we go forward to the future. This is how we keep the main thing the main thing so that we are what God wants us to be, but even more than that, so we're doing what God wants us to do. Habit number one, what needs to be true about us in our lives is we need to reserve our supreme loyalty to God alone. Our supreme loyalty must be to God and God alone. In Matthew 22 and in Deuteronomy 6, we are called to love God. Ultimately, that is a call on us to prioritize God in our lives above everything. You say, why would I do that? Well, consider this with me for a second. God's a covenant God. What that means is, is He calls us into a relationship with Him. He wants us to know Him and be connected to Him. Think about the cross again. God sent the Lord Jesus so that you and I could be reconciled to Him, so we could be in a relationship with Him. But not only in a relationship with Him, but God says, hey, when you trust my Son, when you turn from sin to God and trust the Lord Jesus as your Savior, I'm going to put my Spirit in your life. Part of that is a declaration of God is, I am so committed to you, I'm pledging myself to you. I'm putting my spirit in your life. I'm loyal to you. Have you ever thought about that? God is so loyal to you, He gives Himself to you. And how should we respond to that? I think our response to that should be, as God has been loyal to me, I'm going to respond to God's loyalty by being loyal to Him. I am going to make sure that my life is committed, that He is above everything else in my life. I'm loyal to Him. Think about it for a second. Our church directional statement starts with the words, we exist for the glory of God. By the grace of God, through faith in Jesus Christ, we strive through the power of the Holy Spirit to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Part of what that statement means, part of what that declaration means is, guess what? God's the whole point of life. And the one who is the point of life is loyal to me. How am I going to respond to that? By me being loyal to Him above everything else, above and beyond everything else. I need to keep God ultimate in my life over me over my selfishness, over my preferences, over those things that tug and yank at me so that they'll be more important to me than God. I have the advantage, folks, of I work on the message during the week, so I have the joy of getting beat up all week. So my prayer for you today, I don't care if you watch the football game. What I do care is you ask yourself the question, what is ultimate in your life? And if you need to stop and you need to repent, and there's probably different layers of this, then let's do it. Because we do not go forward unless our ultimate loyalty is reserved to God alone and not to ourselves.
and not to somebody else or something else. Habit number two. We need to commit to submit to God. Look very quickly with me. Over just a couple of pages, Matthew chapter 26, verse 39. And going a little further, he fell on his face. This is referring to Jesus and prayed, saying, My Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Biblically, if you and I are going to love God, Biblically, the Bible always paints that tied to obedience, to people doing God's commands. You know, during his time on earth, Jesus was a perfect example of that. I think we need to move in the exact same direction. We need to follow him. We need to do the will of the Father. But hit the pause button just for a second. Jesus is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. That's not easy. What he's about to face is incredibly difficult. And you say, hang on, hang on. Does that mean if I do the will of God, that might be hard? Yes, it might be. Does that mean if God is the ultimate in my life that I might disappoint somebody in my life? Yes. Yes. Well, why would I want to do that? I mean, think, why would you want to do that? Here's the simple answer, and it's not the main thing and keep the main thing the main thing. The simple answer for why would you want to submit to God, why would you want Him to be ultimate in your life, is because of His love towards you. The great motivation of life for us isn't us and looking impressive. It is because what has God done for me? One of our 9 a.m. classes a couple weeks ago, I was in the class, and, and the question was asked, what provokes you? I think that's a question we all should wrestle with. What is it that provokes us? But here's another question I think we need to wrestle through, and that is, what overwhelms you? What takes your breath away? Again, I have the advantage. I know the question was going to be asked, so here's my answer. The holy God knows that I'm a sinner, that on my own standing, what all I deserve is the wrath of God and the judgment of God. That's it. And yet, in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, it says this, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, I don't have verse 5 quite as memorized. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, He made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. In spite of who I am, in spite of what I have done, the Holy God loves me. The Holy God saved me. And you know what, folks? I think that flips life upside down. I don't deserve that. And yet that's what I get. And not only does it flip it upside down, but being flipped upside down should change everything from that moment forward. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14 and 15. For the love of Christ controls us. It should. It's this amazing thing. Why? Because we've concluded this. 
that one has died for all, therefore all have died. He died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Why love God? Why reserve my supreme loyalty to God alone? Why bend the knee and submit to his will? Because I only have a life. Because he gave it to me. Without him, I am dead. I'm only alive because of him. See, the the stewardship of life and the legacy of life all flows out of God's love. That's why we do these things. That's why we're saying, you want to go forward. Why would I go forward? Because of the love of God. Really quickly, I know time is passing. I'm trying to talk as fast as I can. Well, almost as fast as I can. Final two habits. Habit number three, really quickly, is this. Serve people. You and I need to serve people. We looked at these verses four weeks ago. Galatians chapter 5, verses 13 and 14. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, if you and I are going to keep the main thing the main thing, we've got to love people. We have to. And the way we do that, Paul says, is by serving. If you and I are going to go forward in the next 10 years, one of the things that needs to happen is we need to help one another see that we need to serve. And not just see we need to serve, we need to serve. Here's one of the things I think is a great challenge living in the North American context. All of you have really big to-do lists. Some of you have bucket lists. And if you, I will accept. Someday I'm going to say why I think that is the stupidest thing to have. It really bugs me when I hear that expression for significant theological reasons. So if you want to have that discussion, we'll have it. But we have all those things, and so we organize our life to do all those things. And, oh, well, I'm sorry, I don't, I don't have time to serve. I'll get around to serving when I get my list done. You know what these verses are telling us? Everything else should wait. Everything else should fit around my serving. Look around the room. Does somebody in this room need to be loved? How does that happen? Serving. Part of the mission of Christ is us serving. Habit number four. We need to share the gospel with people. If we are truly going to love people, meaning we want what's best for them, we need to tell them the incredible news of the Lord Jesus. We need to tell them the gospel. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 18 to 20, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry. Us, us. If you've trusted Christ, this is you. You have the ministry of reconciliation. That God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. 
We must. All of us. If you've trusted Christ, all of us need to do this. Not only can 35 to 40 minutes pass really quickly, 10 years can pass really quickly. You and I can spend the next 10 years. You and I could waste the next 10 years. Or you and I could invest the next 10 years. It is my prayer that we will invest the next 10 years in keeping the main thing the main thing. If we do that, it really will be for our good. But much more importantly, it will be for the glory of God. And if that's true, then God will use us to gather people, to gather people that aren't worshiping God, to make them worshipers of God. And it'll also mean that worshipers of God will grow to become more and more like Jesus Christ. The main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. Love God. Love people. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you let us live at a time and a place where we're blessed in ways we don't even realize. And I pray, Lord, that you will do a work in us and in our midst. We need this time with you. God, there's so many things that bombard us. And we wonder, how do I get through today and tomorrow? How do I do this? And I think your words ask, Lord Jesus, is we need to be focused on loving God and we need to be focused on loving people. Father, we may need today to pause and repent on some things. We need to pause today and reorganize maybe some priorities in our lives. We may just simply need to pause today and take a deep breath and just think about your love for us. Father, the next 10 years, the next 10 minutes isn't about us and our effort. It is about meeting you and responding to you because you've committed yourself to us. I pray out of realizing what you've done for us, we'd respond in your goodness and your grace. Thank you for your kindness to us today. In Jesus' name we pray.